Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at Ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. In 1516, Thomas More published a little work of fiction that proposed an ideal society, utopia, which means no place. Originally invented as a philosophical exercise in the vein of Plato's Republic, utopia eventually became a derogatory byword for various kinds of ideal political arrangements, competing theories of human organization doomed to fail when applied to the messes of real places containing real people. In the 20th century, various artists, and particularly novelists, prophesied about the horrors of utopian thinking run amok in a genre of storytelling and world-building that we now call dystopian, that is, pertaining to a bad place. Aldous Huxley's 1932 novel Brave New World foretells a world state characterized by inhumane artificial reproduction, mass psychological manipulation, and mind-numbing drug consumption. George Orwell's 1948 novel, 1984, predicts surveillance tyranny in the guise of Big Brother, under whose boot heel individual liberty has long become obsolete. From Huxley and Orwell, Hundreds of imitators have followed, both in the literary world and in film and television. Some with excellent new insights drawn from contemporary concerns, and others appearing as a facile pastiche. All convey the same message. We must consider the shadow side of theories of human perfection before we find heavenly ambitions turning into hellish applications. Occasionally, a dystopian novel or film paints a religious people, and particularly Christians, as the bad guys. For example, The Handmaid's Tale. But normally, the lack of otherworldly religion is precisely what seems to have gone wrong in an attempt to create a perfect world. John Lennon's Imagine There's No Heaven turns out not to be so easy if you try after all. Humans are made for more than technologically assured safety and pharmaceutically delivered happiness. There is no place where a person may ultimately abandon his soul. Petso Gaskowski has penned a riveting new dystopian novel called Exogenesis, which speaks to the souls of 21st century readers attempting to make sense of artificial intelligence, artificial wombs, artificial religion, and a host of other competitors to what our ancestors knew as real and revealed, as timeless and changeless, 
In Gaskovsky's fictional world of Lantua, a post-catastrophic North American city-state, babies are born in artificial wombs, as in Huxley's vision, and citizens are always on camera, as in Orwell's vision. But a soulless, materialist civilization is also under threat from sects of religious nonconformists, Latin-speaking, child-bearing people of the land. But is one group absolutely right and the other absolutely wrong? Unlike in so much simplistic dystopian fiction, exogenesis shows us a horrifying view of the future that does not have an entirely clear alternative. In brief, Gaskowski does not invite us to put one utopia in place of another. And accordingly, Exogenesis is a work of Christian hope, and therefore not inherently optimistic or pessimistic. Petso Gaskowski is a writer, neuropsychologist, and a self-described pilgrim in the technological machine. He lives in Canada with his family on the borderlands between the urban sprawl and Mennonite country. Exogenesis is his first novel from a major publishing house, and it is available now from Ignatius Press. It is my pleasure to welcome Petso Gaskowski to the podcast. Petso Gaskowski, thank you so much for joining me on the Ignatius Press podcast. How are you? Very good. Very good, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because I really enjoyed your novel, Exogenesis. Um, it's, uh, it's a novel that, of course, you've heard from everybody who's read it is uh, dystopian, I guess, in the vein of, of novels that a lot of people have read, like Brave New World and 1984. Um, I certainly saw very strong influences from both of those books in your book. But I also think what you've written is very fresh, very original, and it very much speaks to uh, a lot of uh, just kind of the the spirit of the age right now. And um, I, I'm very grateful for it. So I guess um, the first thing I'm interested in as we get into our discussion of your book today is just to hear straight from you, what, um, what prompted you to write it and what were the influences uh, upon you that, that produced this, uh, this work of fiction that you've given us? That's a good question. So in terms of the prompting, I guess there were a few things. One is that we're seeing a lot of divisions in our society right now. We're seeing divisions between uh, progressives and uh, conservatives. And these divisions, of course, have been widening quickly in recent years. But we've also seen um, a rapid development of technology and a rapid uptake of different kind of technologies. I mean, particularly digital technologies, but also other technologies. And I think this is creating some challenges as well. So that's been sort of in my awareness for some time. And, you know, really, I can say that my wife and I have been, ever since we had our first child, you know, over 15 years ago now, we have been paying attention to these developments and growing increasingly concerned. And so that's kind of the background to the story. So rooted mostly in just your own experience of wondering about technology and and um, various kind of divisive things at play in the world. And what about kind of the literary influences? This is not your first novel, I know. And um, you, um, 
I'm just curious, uh, what authors are you were sort of fueling your imagination as you contributed yourself to this uh, kind of apocalyptic or dystopian uh, genre? Right. So this is, it's not technically my first novel. It's the first one I've published with a, a publisher other than self-publishing. So the other works were self-published. So this is different in that sense. Um, in terms of influences for this particular book, um, people are always surprised when I tell them this, but I had not read Brave New World at the time that I wrote this book. It was only after. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's very interesting. I know. So the the thing that inspired it was uh, I like paying attention to technology news and seeing what's being developed. It's always very interesting, uh, sometimes exciting, but a lot of the times a little bit disturbing. And so I began to, there were different kinds of technologies that I was paying attention to. So one was birthing technologies and advances in genetics. So some of that was definitely in my background, uh, in the background of my thought, I should say, as uh, as the sort of the novel was uh, percolating in my mind. Well, let's get into, into some of that technology here, but I, I wonder if first maybe you could set the stage for us a little bit and tell us about the world that you've built. Um, the, the novel is set in a place called Lantua, I believe, um, which is a kind of, uh, I don't know, is it a couple centuries into the future of kind of a, a North American uh, kind of post-American empire? Is that is that pretty much where, where we're finding ourselves when we open Exogenesis? Yeah. So Lantua is a, it's a megacity that, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge city with millions of people. And in this world, um, so it's a couple centuries in the future and the old America is gone. And in its place are these two very different societies living side by side. One is Lantua, which is this advanced megacity. And the other society is a traditional farming society where people still do manual labor and work the land. They still believe in God. And there's one thing in particular that these traditional people do, which the city people in Lantua really don't like. They have lots of children. So the story revolves around this woman who works for the city government. And she has this very unusual job. Her job is to make sure that almost all the youth in the traditional families are sterilized. And this is to prevent overpopulation as the Lanchuan government is very anxious about overpopulation and resource scarcity. Uh, and so they're very intent on controlling this uh, partly through this policy of sterilization. And this character is the main character, Maylin Cavella, I believe. That's the one you're talking about. And now Maylin has a very interesting backstory herself, and we don't want to give away too much about the novel, but we learn very early on in the novel that she has had, um, pre, she not only has experience with, with these, uh, these remote farming peoples, which are called the Benedites, correct? That's right. Yeah, they're called the Benedites. And, you know, they, they speak a kind of, Pigeon Latin, I think, um, that is um, a, a, that is related to their ongoing worship of Almighty God, and that's another thing that the people in Lantua don't understand. But um, we find out that Maylin, although she's she's working her way up the ranks of this of this society where she lives, we find out that she has had a past experience with these Benedites that really um, set the course of her life um, towards the trajectory where we find her. Um, Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the novel, do you want to tell us just a little bit more about Maylin? Again, not 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 uh, giving any spoilers, but I think just kind of a, a little a little teaser more about what's going on with your protagonist is is very interesting. 
Sure. So as part of her job, she she goes out into the countryside each year. She leaves the city with her her medical team and her military team, and they and they do the sterilization. And she's been doing this for years. It's her job. Um, she's only away for about a month because it's done in in stages, and there are other teams doing the same thing. So it's it's a routine, normal part of her life, and it's a routine, normal part of society at that time. People expect these these people to come out to sterilize families and. And there's, but there's a bit of unrest around it because the the Benedites uh, obviously are not happy to have their children being mostly sterilized. The majority in the family, usually only one, is left to procreate. So there's there's always a risk of uprisings. And years ago, when Maylin first started the job, when she was kind of like a, an intern, you might say, the first time she went out, um, she got caught up in an uprising that happened while. Her team was was out in the in the countryside, and they she ended up getting uh, captured along with somebody uh, from her team that she was getting involved with, and by some miraculous, you know, misfortune for her, she got pregnant. Now Lanchwins don't easily get pregnant because they have vaccines that prevent pregnancy, but uh, you know they're only ninety nine point you know nine nine percent perfect. So she got she got unlucky, and she ended up getting pregnant while she was in captivity. And, uh, and so that's, that's the background to her story. And that, that incident is kind of a secret for her. She doesn't, nobody knows about it um, because it's a great shame in Lantuan society to have a child through natural childbirth. It's considered, it's considered vulgar, it's considered old worldish. Um, it's considered very medically dangerous. You know, why would you have a child through a natural body birth when Lanchwins have these artificial birthing technologies that eliminate the need for, for women to have to carry babies. So there's all this shame associated around natural childbirth. So that's that's something she carries sort of secretly with her. And partly she's, she's always, I think, trying to prove herself as being as good as any other Lanchwin um, and really strives partly to compensate for this, this secret shame she has in her past. Yeah, and maybe maybe it's worth pausing here. Then but there are two directions I want to go now with thinking about Maylin. Uh, the first is maybe just saying something about how childbirth happens. What kind of a bit more about this exogenesis, which is the title the title of the book. And here I think you know you mentioned at the at the beginning, Petso, that you were thinking about a lot of these like biomedical technologies that we're now you know, facing the, the ethics that are related to those or, or not facing the ethics related to those as the case may be, sadly. Um, but uh, so you, but in your book, this is a, a very important aspect of society in Lantua, as you've already explained. But um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about just the, what the process looks like for, for someone like Mei Lin, who is one of the, one of the themes that runs through the book is, is she and her partner, are trying to come to a decision about becoming not, they don't say parents in Lantua, but becoming guardians of a child that will ultimately be the property of the state, I think. Um, uh, but it happens through this uh, extremely sophisticated medical technology, which is not, I don't think that far off from some of the technology that is on the horizon for us today. Yeah. So, so you're right. So I, the technology we see in exogenesis was inspired by developments happening today. So in, in the world of exogenesis in Lantua, 
um, when parents want to have a baby, uh, or when I should say guardians, because there are no more parents, uh, and the word mother and father are not used in this society, what they do is they uh, create multiple embryos. So um, for the man, for the male and the female, and so in the case of Maylin, I think they have over 300 uh, fertilized embryos they've created uh, just for her, for her, her and her partner. And then these are placed uh, in a facility in artificial wombs, which look like these pouches that kind of hang, uh, sort of hang from the ceiling almost. And um, and the embryos grow within these pouches. And before the embryos are placed, each one is genetically analyzed. Um, and that's also connected to technologies developing today. And the genetic analysis allows prospective guardians to predict, at least from a genetic perspective, setting environment aside for the moment, to predict what kind of person each embryo will grow up to be. So, you know, out of Maylin's and her partner's 300 plus embryos, you know, probably half will be uh, boys, half will be girls, uh, just by chance. Uh, but some will be taller, some will be shorter, some might be better at math, some might be better at music, some might be blonde haired, some might be dark haired, depending on the particular mix of genetics that, that went into a given embryo. And so what Maylin and her partner end up doing uh, as the story unfolds is they struggle to decide which one of these embryos will they choose to be their baby because they can only choose one because of this anxiety around overpopulation. The Lanchwin government has imposed a rule that you can only have one baby. You can make lots of embryos, but you can only pick one. The others have to be disposed of. They have to be aborted. That's the dystopian world that that exogenesis uh, presents, at least in the in in this technological city. So she and her partner end up. You know how you you might scroll through your smartphone when you're trying to pick an Amazon product. Let's say you're buying a laptop or something, or maybe a shirt or whatever. And so you're scrolling through different Amazon products to compare them. Oh, you know this one looks like it's better quality than that one. Maybe I'll buy that one. Well, this is what they do with their embryos because each embryo allows you from a genetic perspective to create these profiles to see with even visual images, what will this future embryo look like if it was born? And so they're, they kind of agonize over trying to choose their, their future baby based on these projections. So that's part, that's one of the threads of the story that, that you see her struggling with. And then and on so the back. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and then on the flip side of that, um, because she's had a pregnancy experience, a real one in the past, and because of some other things, she also finds herself struggling with this whole process. Like, is this really right? Should we be doing it this way? Which is a really unusual thing for somebody in Lanshwa to be asking. Yeah, Petso, I thought your depiction of, of all of that was just really brilliant and really, really startling. Uh, it's something that we really need to face as we're, as we're thinking now about the ethics of some of these technologies that are really happening. Um, there's a term even that I, I believe, you know, uh, there are several terms actually in the book that I, that you invented that I really enjoy. I really enjoyed sort of, you know, the way that you, you used new you know, words of your own to kind of describe this world that you've created. And one of the words that you used was deus born. Um, which is like a kind of, I guess that's kind of like the the superest of the super babies that you can that you can yeah. pick from, which you can really yeah. sort of imagine something like that as a marketing category. You know, it just reducing um, becoming parents. Of course, it's not parents in your 
book, but, you know, taking possession of a child as it were, as just kind of uh, another, another consumer activity that has, um, you know, that has a kind of top of the line as it were. Yeah. Yeah. So there's different options in Lanchua. If you get a deus born child, that's definitely a child with all the best genetics. You know, you could imagine somebody who's very mentally stable, uh, very unflappable, very um, happy, very smart, maybe very tall, very good looking, um, and other whatever other characteristics might go into the perfect person. And then there are archetypes or archetypal profiles, which are not deus born, but they're pretty cool. Like if you want a baby who's going to be a smart scientist or an athlete or a poet, there are these markers that will indicate this looks like one of those archetypes. So you might go for that as well. And then on the opposite extreme, there are occasional Lanchuans who do a crazy thing, which is just to pick a child at random. And they just pick an embryo at random, which is you know very frowned upon. Um, but we learn early on that Maylin herself was chosen like that by her parents, which is another mark of shame against her that she doesn't like to tell people about because it makes her feel genetically defective, even though she's actually quite normal and, and quite capable. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, Petso, how you you kind of built the psychological profile of Maylin with all of these marks of shame that she's sort of she's sort of she has a lot to hide. But at the same time, she is very successful in the world. She is she's um, literally making her way up the social ladder. And you've built a world in which we can see how um, even things like points are avoid are awarded for certain um, positive behavior or for certain successes in careers and, and that, and that kind of thing. And society is divided up into these echelons, which is not a word you invented, but a word that you're using in, in a, a new way, which I really appreciated. I wonder if you could tell us a little more about kind of the structure of the society in Lantua. Uh, cause I think that that is another big element of your, of your story that uh, probably will raise some you know, uh, kind of some alarm bells in people who are observing the culture keenly and a little worried about the way certain things are going with regard to kind of social credit or, you know, the way in which mm -hmm. we kind of police ourselves with, you know, our own, you know, our own sense of what we'll be rewarded for or punished for. Yeah. So Lanchua is a social credit society. Um, we already have, uh, I think, you know, in our own world, China uh, or large portions of it have already adopted a lot of social credit technologies. So in Lanchua, these technologies have been brought to almost perfection. There are cameras everywhere. There are sensors everywhere. Um, and people always have a device with them uh, and they have implants as well. And so you're continually monitored in terms of where you are, what you're buying, what you're saying what you're doing. And uh, people's first instinct, if I say that, they might think, oh, this is like 1984, like Big Brother. But actually, it isn't, because most people in Lantua, um, probably through history, have become accustomed to living in a surveillance state. And because Lantua is so comfortable and has lots of opportunities for interesting experiences and for advancement, um, most people don't mind. So there are these echelon levels, which are the way that people progress in Lanchua. And uh, you get points if you engage in appropriate civil uh, behaviors as a, as a citizen. You get points for doing good at your job. Um, you get point deductions if you commit crimes or if you um, speak in inappropriate ways. 
Um, so it's a very sophisticated system, and 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 Mei Lin, the main character, is fairly high up the ladder. She has a she has a high echelon level. Uh, curiously, her partner, uh, although she's dated other people at upper echelon levels, she didn't really like them very much because they were a bit you know uppity and smug. So she ends up being with this guy who's essentially he's a glorified plumber, and he's at the third echelon. So he's he's got a lower echelon level than her, which probably is. You know, creates an element of jealousy for him in the relationship, but um, you know they get along anyway. But you know, this is the world they live in, so so it's very much yeah, social credit brought to perfection. One of the characters in the novel named Arek or Arek um, said said something in in um, in in the context of talking about the the social credit stuff that I found really really profound. Um, he's talking about the, the surveillance state and he's describing the eyes and you, you capitalize I, the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I thought that was, uh, very noteworthy and it's related to what Rx says. You wrote this, the eyes watch and reward and punish the eyes on the outside become the eyes on the inside and the eyes on the inside become our true judges, our moral conscience, the ones we seek to please our God. So this, you know, I, I, what you said before, Petso, about how the people don't mind the, the surveillance state that they live in, it seems as if they not only don't mind it, but they, they, it, it's sort of unconsciously become spiritualized for them. They, you know, they, they've, made, uh, they've made a god out of their watchers and internalized the watching even, even within them. I thought that was a, a, a really interesting insight and one that, as you said before a second ago, the 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 world that you've created doesn't feel like 1984. It doesn't feel like a kind of brutally oppressive totalitarian ruler. In fact, it seems like just a slide into just living amid comforts. Uh, but that is actually, if you step back from it and think about it, isn't really that free. Um, is that sort of what you had in mind? Yeah, so so a couple of comments came to mind as you were talking at the beginning or near the beginning of that speech. Uh, Eric, he has all the best speeches in the novel. Um, you know, I think that's partly why I created him. I needed somebody to have these these things to say. Yeah. So earlier in that speech, he says, "Who we are depends on who is watching us." Yes. And I think this is profoundly true. You know, from the moment uh, a child uh, is born, the child, the infant, is cradled by his or her mother, and there's eye contact, there's mutual gaze, there, there is a sense of being, um, um, you know, under somebody's observation, under somebody, it's almost like, I think I described it recently as when we get to know our parents, when we get to know our family members and other people that we grow close to th- through the years, people, people that we love or who love us, or people who stir strong emotions, because it's not always positive, but these people almost become like emotional icons that hang in the back of our minds. They become reference points of understanding the world. So when we face moral choice points in our lives, we might reflect back on what our parents taught us or some experience with somebody else where we learned something. Or if we had very traumatic experiences, for example, with the people that we cared about or who were supposed to have cared for us, uh, they still become reference points, just now more conflicted reference points where, you know, maybe we're not sure what our values are because because of what we went through. But one way or the other, the important people in our lives become 
to some extent internalized in our own minds and give stability to our identity. And in the world of Lantua, because there are no parents, there are just guardians and children are raised in care homes, not in real homes, they're raised in institutions. Um, and because everybody's being watched, the eyes that are on you, it, you haven't internalized human beings in the same way. You haven't internalized self, you know, other-centered, sacrificial, loving relationships that you might get from your parents or family or others close to you. You've internalized these cameras and the artificial intelligence algorithms, which Lanchwins, of course, don't even understand because it's so complex. Nobody understands them, but, but these are the things that judge them. So, so that, that becomes the thought, it becomes their moral awareness uh, for them. And that's what Eric is pointing out in the speech, that this, this is our God. This is what we've become. So um, yeah, so it's, it's a very different, different idea of the absolute that they have internalized into themselves. Yeah. You know, just something occurred to me as you were talking, I, I want to explore the spirituality of Lantua a little bit more here in just a second, but it occurred to me that um, it, th this theme of just being used to being surveilled and just sort of living with with these things as as part of normal life is something that startles me certainly um you know i, I when i walk my dog in the morning for example uh, there's one house right down the street from us where the i'm on a public sidewalk i'm not on you know i'm not on this person's property but this person's doorbell can see me from from where I'm standing and it beeps at me and makes a, and blinks. And I think to myself every time, I don't, I'm not comfortable with this, but I'll say this to someone. I'll say, I just can't stand those video doorbells. Can you? And they say, Oh no, I mean, those are great. I mean, they're really useful. You know, I don't hardly even think about them, you know? And I just, I think that we're kind of, we are internalizing this right now. And, and so I think yeah. the kind of somewhat extreme form that you've put forward is very useful for us to step back and think about. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add a, a sort of a footnote to your thought there. So it, in some ways, that doorbell would bother me as well to think I'm being watched. But also think about how we're watched when I when we use our digital devices, if we go on social mm -hmm. media or uh, on, a, on a product site, uh, our clicks are being tracked. We're being profiled by the company on the other side to try to predict what we're going to buy or what we're interested in so that they can feed us content that we we click on and then they they get profits in terms of of that now what's interesting in that process is that at at least at, at in terms of digital media setting aside the doorbell that you described when we use our digital uh media and go onto websites a lot of the stuff is tailored to please us it's tailored to appeal to almost our narcissistic side mm -hmm. so our ego gets validated or our passions get stimulated so we don't really mind. We know on the backside of this manipulation is happening. We know people are profiting financially for sure, and sometimes politically, depending on you know who might be doing the manipulation. Uh, you know, you can imagine that on a news website or something. If something nefarious is happening, I don't mean to you know uh, get into conspiracy theories. I don't think you need to have a conspiracy theory here. Uh, you just need to have a world where people have. Uh, interests, including, I think, particularly financial interests. I think those are the big ones for us. But that's that's happening on the backside. But us, we don't mind because it's pleasurable. It's reinforcing. It's interesting. It's even a little bit addictive. So I think in Lanchua, they've kind of perfected that as well, that 
your subjective experience of society appeals to your narcissistic needs, which makes you happy, and then you're okay with whatever manipulation is happening on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the formula. I mean, if I were somebody trying to design a society to create the perfect social credit system, that's the technique I would use. And I think in some ways we're already using that technique, at least on on, on a lot of social media and, and other types of uh, websites. Right. And there are people even in our society now who who attempt to live sort of like the Benedites do in your book. And sometimes they're successful, sometimes not. Um, but for the most part, those aren't people that your mainstream people who are just sort of consuming and using their devices and everything, they're, they're not, they're not enviable. I mean, you know, why, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go live in the country where things are hard? And why would you want to, you know, it, it, there, even though there's a kind of freedom in it, people would rather not have it. You know, they'd rather just sort of be fed what, what they're given, which, which pleases them. So I, I thought that that the way that you kind of depicted that contrast then between the Lantuans and the Benedites is interesting. Yeah, I think part of what makes us think that we're happy or that we don't need something else is often because we've never known anything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll give you, I'll tell you a little story. My wife, we live close to Mennonites, to Mennonite country. And so we often have interactions with Mennonites as we're purchasing, you know, goods from their stores or from markets. And my wife was recently speaking with with a woman, a Mennonite woman who worked in in a store that sells bread and, and, you know, kitchen types of things. And, and my wife asked her, you know, how do you feel living without a, a smartphone, without a cell phone? And she said, well, I don't know what I'm missing because I've never had one. And she mm-hmm. said, some, some Mennonites do have them, but there are still strict uh, rules about uh, how to use them. Um, but she never had them, didn't know what she was missing and was perfectly happy. You know, and so we might look at her and think, how can you possibly be happy with no Netflix, no YouTube? Mm-hmm. No, no news services, no stock ticker, uh, yeah. no self-help materials. I mean, how can you do this? But right. people do it because, um, yeah, yeah. Well, the tube is the the toothpaste is out of the tube as as it as it seems. So it's really hard now to kind of imagine mm-hmm. going back. But I think your book is a challenge to yeah. at least at least think about it. That that brings me to wanting to ask you a little more about kind of the spirituality that you depict in in the, in these societies. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the Benedites, um, and let's come back to them in a second, but I want to say, I want to think a little bit more about what's going on in Lantua, because even though obviously these people are way, way post Christian, um, and they don't really even have the vocabulary to understand what the Benedites believe or do or anything. It just, it's like they're from another planet. They do have a kind of like consumer spirituality that's available to them. You you talk about the the all spirit. They it's every once in a while it's kind of a thing. If if you're into it, you know you can kind of in, invoke the all spirit, or you can read the Unity Bible. Um, what, what were your thoughts as you were constructing the spirituality of those people? I, I think there again, it, it hits a bit close to home to the way that kind of the consumer friendly spirituality goes now. Well, I, I was trying to imagine, again, if I were trying to, in a sort of uh, you know, nefarious or opportunistic way, create a society where spirituality would be you know, um, you know, something that could be accessible for everybody, but not really change their mind about the world in any significant way, then I thought, well, what spirituality would I invent? So in Lanchua, you can 
um, access spiritual experiences by going to these facilities where basically you sit in a chair, you put uh, a cap on your head that stimulates your brain in a certain way, you take a mild psychedelic drug, and the combination of brain stimulation and the psychedelic kind of gives you an, a spiritual experience. And this is actually not, um, it's not far away from our own society. We obviously already have psychedelics, but we're also starting to understand the underpinnings of certain forms of spiritual experiences. So you've probably heard of the, the sort of the oneness experience some people sometimes describe where they feel at one with the universe. They feel like their, their body has dissolved into everything and everything is them and they are everything and all is one. And, um, we actually know based on um, neuroscientific studies or we're fairly certain about the, the major areas in the brain that play into this. So for example, there's an area in the brain called the parietal lobes, which give us our body boundaries. Well, um, if these, if the functioning of this part of the brain is, is affected in a certain way, then we lose our body boundaries and we have the sense of being kind of like dissolved into the universe. Um, so we don't yet have devices that can stimulate that experience, but our neuroscientific understanding of it is, is quite sophisticated. So there could be a day conceivably when we in fact could put on a brain stimulator and create a spiritual experience. So for most Lantuans, when they do this, some of them think it's spiritual, some of them think it's not, but they don't really care because it's not a conflict issue because they're, it makes you feel good. So it's mm -hmm. mostly around that. And then in terms of the all spirit, the all spirit is called the all spirit because it's just anything that you imagine it to be God or mm -hmm. spirit or divinity is whatever you want. And so it's kept deliberately vague. It's represented in whatever way you want. So it's, it's very much a universalist uh, type of religion, but one that is supported by neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I was a little surprised when you said that you hadn't read Brave New World when uh, when you wrote the novel, not because I thought you were, you know, the the parallel with what you just described, the kind of psychedelic um, kind of oneness experience. Not, not that the, not that it was such a close parallel, um, uh, but that there were certain similarities. But in fact, what I what I wanted to say to you, um, not knowing that you hadn't read Brave New World, was I thought the way that you depicted the the kind of the spirituality of this drug taking and this kind of almost like spa experience was more was more like what I would imagine nowadays than just the Soma experience of, um, of Huxley in Brave New World. Um, I think it probably is it is the case that you know, bit by bit here, people are going to seek these, these religious experiences, um, chemically and, uh, and it will have a kind of, it will also have a kind of theology to it. Like you, like you've laid on uh, here in, in your book. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, in terms of Huxley's world, probably now that book was written 90 years ago. So we have to be mm -hmm. careful about the comparison, but I felt like I wanted to write, at least in, in my case, um, you know, uh, when I was conceiving it, I wanted to write a world that people, even if they disagreed with it on principle or religiously or spiritually, that they could be tempted to want to live in, mm -hmm. right? So I, I, wanted, I wanted my readers who even would feel disgusted by the Lanchuans to still feel tempted by all those technologies, you know, whether it's the spiritual technology or birthing technology or other things, because I think the temptation is there already in our own world. 
to start moving that way. And so I wanted to activate that temptation in a way, in a small kind of safe way. I mean, it's only a novel to get people thinking about, it might not take very much to kind of maybe not nudge us, but maybe our children or our children's children in that sort of direction. Yeah, I appreciated that. I also appreciated how you didn't you didn't depict the Benedites as as being flawless or, you know, it, it you don't set up the the dichotomy such that like you you close the book and you want to just go run off with the Benedites. I mean, they're they're complicated people too, and their society has problems and their people are conflicted, you find out to some degree. Um even though in a, in a way, maybe they are like the Mennonites who just haven't, you know, haven't had these other experiences. And so they don't know and they just live the way that they do. But anyway, I guess I, I just appreciated that uh, the, the way that you drew those characters was um, was was a little more complex, uh, complex and, and refreshingly so. Yeah, yeah, I don't you know, I'm not a believer in utopias. I don't think we'll ever mm. be able to manage a utopia, uh, not in this world. And um, so as much as there might be virtues in Benedict society, I was under no illusions that everyone was going to be happy in, in that society or that things would, you know, all be okay. Right. If you're going to write a dystopian novel, it, it, you know, it, you don't, it's not really very sophisticated to just propose a, a different utopia. You know, um, I, I think that, mm-hmm. I think you've mm-hmm. avoided that very well. Um, let's say, stick with the Benedites just for a moment. I think our listeners will probably be curious as I was, um, since this is a, 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 a Catholic podcast. Um, what are, what are the Benedites? I mean, they don't, they don't seem to, we don't see priests. We don't see, um, I mean, we hear about priests a little bit, I think, but we don't really see them actually practicing their religion. We see them with a kind of home spirituality with um clearly they know scripture they they know latin um so what what were you basing them on what what kind of like you know tradition within christianity or or, or what was in your mind when you were creating them so the i probably should start with the word benedite which is not fully explained in the novel but it it sort of suggested that it's somehow connected to saint benedict who of course is the uh, maybe the father of Western monasticism, and when I was imagining a some future dark age or dystopia where people had to survive, um, I sort of imagined a bit fancifully, you know, what would happen if all these uh, Christian homeschooling families suddenly fled mm-hmm. into the wilderness? Um, how would they reconstruct themselves in a world where probably institutional religion has been decimated? And there's nothing left in terms of um, real organization anywhere. Now people are just having to live day by day. And it seemed to me that um, probably people would be very traditional, right? That would be the the first thought that if you're going to lean, if you're going to lean on Christianity at some point, the most stable structures you're going to have are pre-existing traditions that, that you either... Uh, remember or that you have documentation for. So, you know, you think about the Catholic tradition, you've got 2000 years of tradition right there. You've got, you've got uh, uh, your mass, you've got uh, the Eucharist, you've got uh, traditions around praying to saints there. I mean, it's all there. And so I imagine that, okay, in, in this world, people are going to gravitate toward these tangibles that they know their ancestors did. So that kind of fed into a lot of the thinking. So there are priests, 
in the story. There are churches. I mean, they're not depicted because the story is written from the point of view of um, of Meilin, who because who's from the city. Uh, mm-hmm. But we do hear a lot about them because, of course, she's she gets into this interrogation situation with a Benedite, with a young Benedite, and they talk a lot about spirituality. So a lot of this stuff comes up. Uh, and, of course, they have a Bible, which is technically illegal. They're not supposed to have a Bible, but they do. Uh, and they also speak Latin, uh, or at least a, their own dialect of Latin, um, which is also to distinguish them. Uh, and that's probably a bit fanciful, but I imagine somehow certain genetic um, variations through earlier experimentation kind of leaking into the population so that people could become more prolif- um, uh, proficient mm-hmm. in terms of acquiring language. So that's a bit of a, of, uh, a background to the story I don't fully explain. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it, what came to mind, a couple of things came to mind to me. I mean, one, with the language thing, I, I think of the modern state of Israel. I mean, they they literally reinvented an ancient language right. to to use. Um, right. So I thought I thought that was uh, that was in my mind as I was reading, and and certainly I was thinking about the you know the the famous Benedict option idea of of um, Rod Dreyer, um, who you know proposed this idea of the Benedict option for kind of um, the the way that Christian communities might continue to flourish amid you know, all of these obstacles that are, that are, that are coming to fruition. But the thing that I, that that we've already discussed that I thought um, came through in, in your novel is that great, try the Benedict option. Like that may be, that may be the best kind of thing that, that Christians can do in, in the coming years, but just know it's not going to be perfect. There's no utopia and um, it's going to have, you know, it's going to have problems and blessings at the same time, but, but maybe something like that really is the way that we ought to, we ought to start thinking. Um, But yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I'm not sure if you ask me personally, would I want to live in that kind of community? My answer is no, I don't want to live. uh, I'm not a farmer. I'm not made to be a farmer. I'm a, I'm an intellectual. I'm creative. Uh, I like my books. I like, I drink coffee. I'm not sure the Benedites have coffee. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so, uh, I would rather see a world where we could uh, find a way to um, have a, a, a culture that was free enough that we could, you know, live as we wanted to live and and live peaceably or at least tolerably with each other, uh, rather than splitting and dividing. Which is kind of where our conversation began, right? What inspired the novel? This mm-hmm. this perception in society that um, not only do we have divisions, but this, the level of animosity uh, is becoming uh, very great. And I think if we keep going in this direction, increased polarization and extremism on both sides is inevitable. And that's why I think if if that is the direction we go in, yes, you probably will have one one group that says, look, we're just going to split off and do our own thing. And mm-hmm. if it doesn't fit for you, then that's your tough luck. You're going to be unhappy um, because we have these, we're going to have to live by strict rules to keep everybody in line. Um, that's not really an easy way to live. Yeah, very well said. And I think, as I, I've already said, but I'll reiterate again, I think that really comes through in the book. And I, for my part, I, I felt like your book ended on a, a relatively hopeful note. And um, that leads me to kind of my my um, my last thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is, um, it seemed that, that Exogenesis is very possibly ready for a sequel or for a continuation of this story. Do you have in mind further novels that are set in the same, in the same world? Uh, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking more in terms of prequels, what leads up to this Mm. world or 
you know, going back to earlier stages because exogenesis happens about two or 300 years into the future. Uh, whereas now I'm sort of thinking, well, what about 10 years from now? What, what might it look like? Or 15 years from now? Um, what are the themes that are more immediate in our time? Um, so that's that's been a bit on my mind, but certainly something uh, in terms of a sequel that comes after. Yeah, I've thought about that, that as well. Well, I I can I can easily imagine that, and I certainly would like to know more about some of the characters that you've that you've drawn here. We didn't really get into some of the other characters in the book, but uh, Patrick Whitson is mm-hmm. uh, a, a great character that uh, who's. Um, a young man, um, a very central figure in the book. And I know that everyone who picks up the book will be very interested in his story. And um, there are a lot of other figures too, like members of the bureaucracy and sort of you, you've, uh, mm-hmm. you really constructed quite a world with uh, different, different types of people, both in Lantua and uh, among the Benedites and, and beyond. So everyone's going to want to pick up this book. It's a, a really terrific read, gripping read, full of, it's full of action too. We didn't really get into that a whole lot, but it is a, uh, it's not just a heady book. It really is a a, a very um, action driven book. And uh, I don't know uh, if there's any anything you want to say in wrapping up about that. Just you know how you constructed the the kind of the way that the the plot drives and and the action that you've embedded in there. It's it's quite uh, exhilarating at times. Yeah, I should say I um, I wrote the book for my wife. I wrote it in secret. I wanted to present it to her for her birthday, so I wrote it over the course of ten months. Um, I actually abandoned ended it a couple of times in the beginning because it wasn't I was struggling to get the plot right I wasn't sure about how it was going to go but I, I just something kept pulling me back to it so then uh, you know by the time it was her birthday at the end of the year I was able to say okay you know here's this book it's for you and um, so I, I had to work hard to make sure I could please her because she reads a lot of novels so I thought I have to set the bar as high as, as, high as I can well, it's very entertaining. I'm sure that she liked it. I certainly liked it very much. The book is Exogenesis, available wherever you get your books. Please go and get this one. Petso Gaskowski, thank you so much for joining me today on the Ignatius Press Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless.